All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter this morning. Second Peter, and you know, as we get into it, we are continuing a series that we kicked off last week um, about expectations. Hey, what should we expect from the church, and uh, what does God expect from us in the church? And so we're, we're getting into that second half of that here in the second epistle of the Apostle Peter. And last week, you know, we looked at examples of the church given in 1 Corinthians, and we saw there that Man, the primary posture of church is one of worship, uh, of submission, and of subservience to God. In other words, church isn't Burger King. It's not where you come to have it your way. Uh, It's the worship of the king where we come to have it his way. That's the idea of what church is all about. And Paul gave us four examples last week that we looked at through in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 um, of what a church is supposed to be like. Actually, the examples in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He said, firstly, that church is like a garden. One plants, the other waters, but it's God who gives the increase. Secondly, he said that uh, church is like a building. That uh, Jesus is the foundation and that we build on him. Uh, and he says that we, you and, you and I, we are to be like servants. That we're under rowers. That, that our job is to just take commands from the Lord and, and just row the ship. man. just do what he's called us uh, to do. And we are to be, Paul says, like stewards. That, you know, basically we're entrusted with something that doesn't belong to us and we need to be faithful to it. Well, today we transition from what God expects from us corporately as a church, uh, and now we expand on what, ex- what God expects from us individually in the church. Second Peter, we're going to jump right into it, verse 1. He says, uh, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which verse 4, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. There's lots to unpack here in these four verses. And for starters, we note that this epistle was written by the apostle uh, Peter. Now, there's two questions that we got to ask right up front. Who was Peter writing to? And, uh, and why was he writing to them? And as we'll see as we get into this epistle, when we get to chapter 3, we get a clue in chapter 3 who he's writing to. He doesn't say it right up front, but in chapter 3 he indicates that this is the second epistle or the second letter that he was writing to this particular group. Now, uh, this helps us tremendously because the only other letter that we have from Peter is, is, the, is 1 Peter, 
And 1 Peter tells us there who he was writing to. Certainly it's possible that there are other letters that he wrote that we don't have, but uh, the most obvious answer and explanation is what we do have, and that's that this is, a, for, this is the letter that he wrote to 1 Peter. Now he writes 2 Peter to the exact same group of people. 1 Peter tells us that he was writing to the, the Christian believers that were in the area of modern-day Turkey. And when he wrote the first letter to them, basically it was a letter of encouragement of how do they deal with problems from outside the church because what was going on when he wrote the first letter was that the church was undergoing tremendous persecution. People were being martyred for their faith and Rome had, had tried to make Christians a scapegoat for, for problems that they were having and so on. And so this, there was this intense persecution and that was the cause and the occasion for his first letter. And what we're going to discover here in 2 Peter that the cause and the occasion for the reason why he's writing this epistle, well, it's because there's problems inside the church. And specifically, the problems that they were dealing with inside the church is a problem that we deal with today inside the church, and that's a problem with false doctrine. Basically, what, what we need to understand is that today, a huge issue that we struggle with is false doctrine, or kind of a variant of that, which is a lack of knowledge about basic doctrine. And this is problematic within the church because it fuels some of the greatest debates that we have as Christians. False doctrines, they, they, they float around and they challenge, for instance, the doctrine of inerrancy and the doctrine of immutability, which basically talks about the, the Word of God. That, that, you know, it's, it's without error. That, and that it, that it is, that is constant, that it's fixed. That God said what he meant and he meant what he said. See, today there's great debate within the church about, hey, is the Bible reliable? Is it the actual word of God? Is it rigid truth? Is it the true north like a compass? Or is it more like people will argue that the Constitution of the United States is a living document and that it you know, was written 200 years ago, but hey, it's supposed to morph with the culture and, and so on. They're just kind of basic principles or guidelines. And a lot of people will argue that the Bible is that way. They'll actually make arguments that say, you know what, it was written 2,000 years ago and, and you know, we as a people have grown in knowledge and, and we've evolved and so you know, that there's, there's principles that were written 2,000 years ago that don't apply to today. Now believers will actually say this, which is the most foolish thing in the world when you consider the, that it's God who wrote the Bible, who, who lives outside of time, knows the end from the beginning, he makes very clear. And so you go, oh, well, so what you're saying is that we know better than God. That we as a people have evolved and we're, we're smart and God, you know, poor old God, he's antiquated God from 2,000 years ago and, and he wouldn't be as enlightened as we are. You know, just foolishness where doctrine is concerned. And these are debates that are happening within the church today. There, there's debates that rage within the church about all sorts of things, and they all trace back to this issue of doctrine. Either people are just ignorant of doctrine, or they try to twist doctrine. And so, you know, all of these debates, you know, can pastors drink alcohol? Is it really sinful to practice homosexuality? Uh, where do we draw the line with tolerance? Uh, can women be pastors? Can I smoke pot? Can I use the women's bathroom? 
Can, should I vote for Trump? You know, all of these things are, you know, and, and the, the, the simple fact of the matter is, is that the Christian who doesn't have a clue as far as what the Bible teaches and the basic fundamental truths has a really difficult time navigating the course of this world successfully. And it's reflected in our culture and it's reflected in our churches. And so there are all of these countless examples, and that just barely scratches the surface of all the stuff that we try to get our heads around and we try to navigate through. And, and it just underscores this issue of, listen, we need wisdom and we need knowledge. And, and so Second Peter serves as an alarm, as a, as a, as a warning. And, and, and it basically says, look, if you, if you want to navigate this sinful world successfully, it's vital, and here it is, that you grow in faith and knowledge. And that word knowledge is the key to this book. Um, the key verse in 2 Peter, we'll get to it eventually, is in chapter 3, verse 18, where we're exhorted to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the, the word know or knowledge appears throughout this epistle. This is a, a short epistle. It's three short chapters. And it's you, the word know, know or knowledge is used 13 times throughout these three chapters. And, and it's not talking about a mere intellectual knowledge or understanding. No, that, 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 that word knowledge it means a living understanding. And Jesus Christ himself emphasized this point in John 17. He's with his disciples. He's praying to the Father, and he says this. He says, now this is eternal life, that they, speaking of his disciples and you and me, know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And when he says that they know you, this is, this is a knowledge that's born from intimacy. That's what this, that this word means. It's a knowledge that is born from intimacy, <clears throat> just as you know your children. Moms, you know your children's cry. You know when they're crying because they're angry. You know when they're crying because they're hurt. There's a difference. How do you know? Because you know them. Right? And so there's this experiential knowledge that Jesus is talking about, and this is what Peter is emphasizing here, this need to know God intimately and personally so that when we're faced with the issues in this world, we can navigate through them because we know our Father that well. And so that's Peter's message here. His message is, look, persistence in the faith by growing in the knowledge of God. So Peter begins his message here uh, in verse 1, in the place where all true knowledge starts. If you're taking notes, you could write this down. He makes a humble profession. That's where knowledge begins, a humble profession. It's, it's, it's significant to note that he uses um, two two-word pairings in this first verse. And so these two-word pairings, we see the first one here that he says, he identifies himself as Simon Peter. Now, you'll recall that, you know, his, his name was Simon. He was Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. And this is what he went by. But then an incident happened in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 16. And what happens there is that Jesus and his disciples, they're at Caesarea Philippi. 
And so there they are, and Caesarea Philippi was basically a region that was filled with the worship of, of false gods, and so there were all these pagan altars and, 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 and so, uh, so on. And, um, and so they're there, and against this backdrop of all of these false gods, all of these different gods that people worship, Jesus asks his disciples, he says, Who do men say that I am? You know, they, they're worshiping all these other gods, all these false gods, and they say that all of these other entities are, are, are God. So, so who do they say that I am? And so Simon steps up and he says, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're, you're Jeremiah, some say you're, you know, one of the prophets. That, that, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what people say that, that, that you are. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? Which is what it always comes down to that you need to say in your own heart and in your own mind, who is Jesus? And if he's God, you need to worship him as God. And so this is the account. This is the judgment. This is the, the final. This is the only entrance question on, the, on, on the, the, the entrance exam to heaven. Who do you say that Jesus is? And, and so he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And, and Simon steps up. <clears throat> he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Now, at this point, Jesus changed his name. Here's how it reads in Matthew's gospel. Put it on the screen for you. Jesus answered him and he said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You're going to stand up there, Peter, and say, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. You are blessed. My father's revealed that to you. And he says, and I also say to you that you are Peter. This means a little rock. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, was Jesus saying, hey, Peter, I'm going to build my church on you? Well, this is what the Catholic Church insists that he was saying, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. Now, he used Peter significantly as the leader uh, in the early church, but Jesus wasn't saying, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. He said, I'm going to build my church on your profession of faith, what just came out of your mouth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what he builds his church on, and so... He says, I'm going to build my rock, or I'm going to build my church on this rock, the rock of profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I'm going to call you, Peter, a little rock because you're emblematic of that. You've just made that profession. <clears throat> now, so he changes his name to Peter. Peter, you nailed it. Awesome. Fantastic. But you know, if, you're, if you know Peter, and, and this is why Peter, so many of us relate to Peter, we're like, he's my guy. Why? Well, because he, his life is, you know, not always all highlight reel footage, you know. For every highlight reel that, that he makes in his life, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God, that's going on my highlight reel, that's awesome, you know. There's also a few epic fails in his life. Ladies, you ever seen Pinterest fails? Have you ever looked at that? You know, they've got this perfect thing that's noted on Pinterest, and then you've got the, 
not quite, close, you know, kind of. And this is Peter. He's got those, those epic accomplishments, those highlight reel things in his life, and then he's got epic fails. And, you know, Peter, he rushed when he should have waited. He talked when he should have listened. He slept when he should have prayed. Uh, he was careless when he should have been cautious. This is the guy. And right on the heels of this confession of faith, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. You guys know, you've read it. In fact, it's four verses later. It's in the same chapter, four verses later. Jesus starts telling his disciples about how he's going to the cross and how he's going to die and so on. And Peter takes him aside and he begins to rebuke him. He's like, that, no, no, Jesus, that is not the plan. You're going, to be, you're going to rule and reign. You're going to be the conquering king. We're all getting offices. I'm getting my quarter office. I got my furniture picked out for my office because I'm going to rule and reign with you. So knock off the I'm going to die stuff because that doesn't fit with my plan. And Jesus says at that point, blessed are you, Simon. No, he doesn't. He says, get behind me, Satan. That, that's a bad day when Jesus says that to you. I just tell you. <laughs> Peter you know, he, he's, he, he goes from being, hey, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, I, and you're, I'm going to call you Peter from now on, and I'm going to build my church on this rock of profession, and then, then four verses later, get behind me, Satan. In Romans chapter 7, the apostle Paul was discussing this ongoing struggle between the flesh and the spirit. He says there, <clears throat> I don't understand myself. What I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, that's what I do, right? Uh, Romans 7, 24, put on the screen. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, is what he says. Now, it's interesting. You read uh, Charles Spurgeon, and, and he says that what Paul is doing when he makes that statement in Romans chapter 7 is that he's referring to an ancient practice of, of kings in that day that when they had somebody who was convicted of a heinous crime of murder or whatever that they would take their victim and they would tie the body of the dead victim to the person and make him walk around with this rotting corpse as punishment and what ultimately would happen is that the rotting, decaying corpse would infect the person with disease and they would die this long, struggling, horrible, lingering death. And so what, Martin Luther, or what Charles Spurgeon said is that this is what Paul's referring to. That he's saying, I'm like that. I've got, you know, I've got this new nature and all, but I've got the old Paul is chained to me that I'm rock, walking around with. And Man, we can, we can identify with that, can't we? I mean, I, you know, we, we have those shining moments where we have this wonderful relation with God and, and God does this sweet thing and I, and I just happen to, you know, be, thank you, Lord, by your grace, I'm submitted to your will and I'm walking in your will and blessed are you, Ted, son of Edgar Charles Shepherd Leavenworth III, you're doing great, you know? And then I've got those moments in my life where he's like, get behind me, Satan. You blew it, you know? And, and this is the principle that Peter's conveying here. He's saying, listen, I'm Simon. I'm a sinner by nature and choice, and that's what I bring to the table. And I can't ever forget, I'm Simon. But we also see him saying, listen, I'm also Peter. 
I'm a man who stands on the rock of Jesus Christ by my confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Peter, this is, this is his, his starting point, his, his, his humble beginning. He says, look, I'm Simon and I'm Peter. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Now another word pairing that we see here is that he says in verse 1, I'm a bondservant and I'm an apostle. Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And the order of these titles is significant. Peter considers himself first a bondservant and secondly an apostle. And again, this is just just in its statement and in its presentation, it's a lesson in humility. We looked at this last week where, you know, the disciples, they all got, they got mad at James and John because they went to Jesus and they're like, hey, you know, we want positions of authority in your kingdom. One at your right hand, one at your left hand. And... Everybody else lost their lid. They're like, who do you think you are? And Jesus, in Mark's gospel, I'll put it again on the screen for you, Jesus called them to himself and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. That word slave there literally means bondservant. That's the same word that Peter uses here. And so this idea, knowing that God intimately and experientially, that he starts with a humble confession, now Peter's next point is that it is also this, this knowing, this growing in knowledge, hey, it brings with it a precious possession. A precious possession. Look there again in verse 1. Simon Peter, bondservant, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like, there's the word, precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter says here, listen. I'm a man changed by God. I'm Simon, but I'm also Peter. And I have now a hope and a future. And I'm writing to those of you who share this like precious faith with me. Everything that I've obtained by my faith, I'm writing to you who share a like precious faith. That phrase, like precious faith, it literally means of equal value. In other words, Peter is saying, look, the same faith that altered the course of my life can and will alter the course of your life. And I want you to note that faith not only originates from God's grace, but it results in even more grace. This is what Peter says here. And, and so the, the, the outcome of that grace, that God, that God gives you grace, that, that, you know, the, he, he, he pours it out on you and, and he, he, he gives it to you. It results in more grace that you have in your life and the result is peace. Listen to this. At the heart of every belief system other than Christianity, every other belief system is anchored in a works-based theology. 
This is true of the Muslim faith. It's true of, the, of Buddhism, of Hinduism, of Catholicism, of Mormonism. All of them are rooted in a works-based uh, theology. In the Mormon church, they call this doing the good. And you'll hear that phrase in the Mormon church over and over and over again. And the, the, the point is, is that you have to, by your own efforts, attain a right standing with God. And the, 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 the troubling part about all of these religions, and that as a, as a theological base for your religion, the troubling part, well, the greatest troubling part is that, it, you know, the Bible says all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So that's the biggest troubling part is that you always, on your best day, aren't going to be good enough. Your boat sinks halfway to Catalina, and there's two of you on there. One of you drowns right off the bat. The other guy makes it 50 feet off the, the pier in Avalon, and he drowns. Where are you both at? You're both dead is where you're at. Some of you, you do better in this life. You're, you, you can do the good better than others. But if that's all it's depending on in your life, then you're going to wind up before God where he judges you by your works and you by your works will be found guilty and you'll go to hell. And so that's the most troubling part. But another troubling part of this belief system, if you are somebody who is, is founded in you know, a works-based theology, it's that you never have peace. You never have peace because you never quite know where you stand with God. It's like, you know, have I done good today? Have I not done good today? And so it's this burden that you have to carry around with you. The Bible is the only religious book and Christianity is the only religious system that teaches salvation by grace through faith. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So what that means is that God loves you simply because he loves you. He doesn't love you because you're good enough. He loves you because he's made a decision that he's going to love you. And look, when you fully grasp the concept of grace, that it's a precious gift that you can possess, then the result in your life is peace. And some of y'all, you need to hear that today because maybe you relate to God on the basis of, am I good enough? Am I not good enough? Have I, have I done things that are pleasing to him so I can come to him? Or, you know, is it a bad day? And now, you know, I can't even draw near to God because of what I've done. Hey, listen, the Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This isn't a license to act any way you want and just pull out the grace card and go, oh, grace, grace, grace. A lot of people do that today. A lot of people who emphasize grace and they, and they spend their life living like hell. And the problem there is that that illustrates you don't understand grace. Because the Bible says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When you understand that God loves you no matter what, it is, it is such a freeing and encouraging thing to know you know, God loves you. And so when you sin, you can run to God and say, God, forgive me. Have mercy on me. That that I want to do, I don't do. That that I, that, that I don't want to do, that's what I do. God, have mercy on me. Save me from this body of death. And he will. You, you, when you're saved, you're not going to stop sinning. 
You're going to be, you're going to be, you're a new creation. You're going to, you're going to develop new habits. Your, your, your way is going to change. Hopefully as a Christian, you can look in your rearview mirror and go, my life today does not reflect anything like I used to be. I'm not perfect. I'm still struggling in different areas. I'm still trying to grow in different areas, but I'm making progress. And so this issue of grace, it's something that in your life, if you've lived a works-based theology and you come to the appreciation that God loves you simply because he loves you and he's made a way for you to be right in his presence and that he can forgive you of every sin, past, present, and future. And that because he loves you in that way, not only you're acceptable today, but he can change you and he can cleanse you if you'll trust him and you'll let him. It's an absolute freeing dynamic. Blows people's minds when they come to the place where they realize that Christianity is different than every other religion. That it's based on God's grace. And he can cleanse you and he can make you and he can forgive you and he can bring you through. And so it's, it, it's just this incredible thing. I'm justified by faith and I can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 1 Timothy, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And that word mediator there, it means one who intervenes between the two to make or to restore, here it is, peace and friendship. You have Jesus Christ who is a mediator to restore peace and friendship in your life with God. Do you have peace today? Because you can. It's available in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Every time I read that, I want to point out, Jesus Christ, right this second, right this moment, is at the right hand of the throne of God, the position of the advocate, the defense attorney, and what's he doing there right now? He's praying for you by name, right this moment. Sometimes we see grace as a limited commodity. We see it as something that, you know, there's only so much of it available. Peter himself, he kind of illustrates that point. He goes to Jesus. He's like, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? That's, that's, like, that's going above and beyond, man, isn't it? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Forgiveness is unlimited. It is, it, it, you'll, you'll never get to the end. Of God's grace. And so we have a humble confession. We have a precious possession in our faith. And thirdly, what we have, we have a powerful manifestation. A powerful manifestation. Again, he says this. He says, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord 
As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now this is a mouthful. What's going on here? Here's the deal. Knowing God experientially not only brings an overflow of grace and peace into your life, which is what Peter is saying, but it also brings us power to live the abundant life. Knowing him brings us the power to live an abundant life. Jesus said this in John's gospel. He said, the thief does not come except to, to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, when Jesus says in John 10, 10 there, that I've come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly, that phrase more abundantly, it's the word perisos. And what it means is over and above, more than is necessary, super added. You go to McDonald's, they say, you want to supersize that? That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, listen, you, I have come that you might have absolute supersized life, a super abundant life. This is God's desire for you. God's desire for you is that you live this, you know, hey, supersized, super added, over the top kind of life. And this is a life where Peter says in verse 4, you can actually be a partaker of God's divine nature and overcome the corruption of the world. Now that word partaker, you might want to circle it and nearby you could write this, write partner, comrade, or companion. He says there in verse 4 that, that uh, by which, by God's grace, has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, through what? Through these promises, you may be partakers, there's the word, of the divine nature. A partner, a comrade, a companion. Let me explain it this way. Satan, when he was in the garden tempting Eve, he said this to her. He said, you can be like God if you'll listen to my promises. That's essentially what Satan said to her. You can be like God. You don't listen, don't listen to God. Listen to me. And if you, if you live your life according to what I'm telling you, according to my promises to you, <clears throat> then, then you, you, can, you can have the life that God is trying to keep from you. But Peter, what he says here is no. Listen, you can be like God if you grab hold of his promises. Listen, that is the key to life. That's why it is so abundantly important that we grasp what he's saying here and that we tune in strongly to the rest of this short little epistle. Because what Peter is teaching us here is, look, I'm telling you, it's absolutely critical that you grow in the knowledge of God. Because growing in the knowledge of God, growing in the promises that he gives, is the key to your entire life. If you live your life according to his his words. On December 10th, 1985, my dad 
gave me a present. It was the occasion of the birth of my daughter Megan, my first child. And my father gave me a Bible, which is one of my most treasured possessions. In the margin of the Bible, my dad wrote these words. And these words have shaped my life. They have shaped my children's life. They've shaped my grandchildren's life. And by God's grace, they'll shape my great-grandchildren's life. So my dad wrote to me. He said, Ted, guide your family by Jesus. The words of Jesus are absolute truth. They are the revelation of God. Anyone who tells you otherwise tells a lie. If you set your course by the gospel of Christ and by his promises, you will gain eternal life. Peter says the exact same thing to us here. Listen, God's given you promises in his word. If you will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if you will set your compass according to his word, then what will happen is you will experience these great and precious promises and you'll overcome the sinful one who wants to take you down. The psalmist said this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him.